We're in this little mini-series between Hebrews and Galatians down the road. I'm calling it the journey of the Christ life, living the Christ life, however you want to say it. This is part two. We started it last week. How long it'll last, I'm not real sure. But this morning, we want to take another aspect of the journey of the Christ life. And I want to talk about living free from the grip of sin. Living free from the grip of sin. Romans 6, 1 through 14. But let me get you there. When a person becomes a believer, which is by faith alone, in Christ alone, there is no other way, he's immediately freed from the guilt of sin, which the law of God, the Ten Commandments, exposes in every man. The curse that the law holds over every person born into this world is removed at salvation and when the believer becomes a brand new creation in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. He's no longer under the curse of the law. Why? Because Jesus became a curse for us when he died on the cross for our sin. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. We're now believers, free in Christ from the guilt of sin forever. But we are also free in Christ from the grip of sin, which had its unbreakable hold on us before we came to know Christ. As sinners in Adam, remember when Adam sinned, we all sinned. We were in the loins of Adam, not yet born, but when Adam sinned, sin was passed into the to mankind like a virus. As sinners in Adam, without Christ, we did what we did because we were what we were. That's all we knew, and we couldn't change that. Sinners sin because sinners are sinners. We're saved from what we were to become a brand new creature. But now that Christ has come to live in us in the person of his Holy Spirit, causing us to partake of his divine nature, as Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, the power of sin has lost its grip on us. Now this brings up the question that we will address this morning. If we're set free from the guilt of sin and the grip of sin, then why do we sin and how can we overcome it? Because this is, the, this is every day. This is the practical Christian life. We still sin. Why and how do we overcome the sin? that enters back into our life. Our text is in Romans 6, 1 through 14. The context of Romans is incredible. People have asked me, what's my favorite book? I, it's usually whichever one I'm teaching, but he, Hebrews is, is right there at the top, and Romans is right there at the top. I don't know which would be the, the top one. They're, they're right there together. But in Romans chapter 1, Paul exposes sinful, rebellious nature of man without Christ. The rebellious nature of man. So it takes one chapter to do that, pretty obvious. In Romans 2 and 3, however, he exposes the sinful, religious nature of man without Christ. But then in, through chapter 5, he shows how we are redeemed from sinful living only by faith in Christ. Faith alone in Christ alone. In chapter 6 through 8, which are the crown jewels of Romans, he addresses how we live now that we're in the grace of Christ. 
What's this sanctification look like? You know, it's not a matter of us living like Jesus. It's a matter of us letting Jesus live his life through us. Sanctification is learning to live out what God says we already are. He's already seen us glorified. So it's a process of learning how to release the Christ that lives within us, which produces a behavior that God demands. We cannot measure to it, but Christ can and will if we'll surrender to him. Now, with that in mind, let's jump into chapter 6, verses 1 through 14, as to why we sin and how do we overcome its grip in our life. There's four things I want to share with you this morning. Hopefully, it'll be an encouragement to you. I don't know how it will work in your life. But first of all, if we're going to live free from the grip of sin, we've got to realize what happened when we got saved. Apparently, the Romans didn't get it, the believers there, so we need to realize what happened when we got saved, verses 1 through 5. Verses 1 through 5, Paul's addressing the antinomians, anti-against, nomos is law. His, and they were the ones who were the party hardies. Grace to them was a license to do whatever they wanted to do. We're under grace. We're under grace. And Paul addresses that. They have a very wrong view of grace. In verse 1, he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace might increase and immediately he erases this idea that somehow grace is licensed the freedom that we have in christ is not the power to or the freedom to do as we please or right to do as we please but it's the power in christ to do as we should it's not the right to do as we please it's the power in christ to do as we should paul does the most interesting thing under the leadership of the holy spirit in chapter 6, verses 1 through 13, he puts the definite article in front of the word sin. All the way down through verse 13. And then in verse 14, he drops the article and then picks it up again as he continues in Romans. A definite article is something that identifies something that's specific. When you put the definite article in, now we use it all the time, the the, you see a word, T-H-E, the, we assume it's something definite, not necessarily. In the Greek, when the definite article is not there, it qualifies something, as we'll see when he, used, he drops it in verse 14. But when it is there, it identifies something specific. If I had a table over here, it was full of books, and I said, go over and pick up the book. But say in the Greek, the definite article was not there, even though I used the word the, but the the was not in the text then you could go over and pick up any book you wanted to pick up. But if I say go over and pick up the book and the definite article is in there, you have to find the specific book that I'm talking about. Definite article identifies. Without the definite article, it qualifies. Now, hang on to that thought. By using the definite article before the word sin, he's not talking about this sin or that sin or that sin over there. He's talking about the specific nature of sin, which is what? It's a lawless attitude towards life. It's devoid of any belief towards God. In other words, the root of all sin is this right here. It's unbelief. God's not in the equation whatsoever. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to do when I want to do it because I'm God of my life. I trust only in myself, and no one's going to tell me any different. That's the way all of us live without Christ. That's, what, that's the way we were before we came to know Christ. As John says about this nature of sin in 1 John 3, 4, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. He says, 
And sin is lawlessness. I'm not going to listen to anybody. It's my way or the highway. So Paul says, are we to continue in sin? Are we to continue to live lawlessly, listening to nobody but ourselves? And Paul answers his own question in verse 2. May it never be. I love that phrase because it's used over and over again in Rome. It's one of the key phrases. It's kind of like my son Stephen saying, Daddy, can I borrow your golf clubs? No. May it never be. You borrowed my last set, and I didn't get them back. And then he says, how shall we who died to sin, how shall we who died to the old way of doing things our way and not listening to anything that God would have to say, how shall we still live in it? It's impossible. That's what he's saying. In verse 3 it says, or do you not know, agnoeo. That means are you walking, present tense, are you walking around without this understanding? You see people like this all the time. That all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. Do you not know this? Do you not know what happened to you the moment that you got saved? Do you not get it? If I had a bowl of red dye up here, a clear bowl that you could see the dye, and I took a white cloth and I put that white cloth down inside that red dye. I have baptized it into that red dye. We've been buried, it's buried into that, that red dye. Now, my Presbyterian friends that I love dearly, they say it means to be identified with. And of course, us Baptists, we say it means to be immersed. Of course, we're both right. I hope you know that. It means both of those things. Except that I just want them to know that it takes more than a cup of water to drown me because the word for drowning in the secular Greek was baptismos, which we use for the word baptized. So it's, that's all right. We're okay. But there is an identification in here. So I put that, that white cloth that you're going to see in a moment. I put that white cloth down into that red dye. Now something happens to that red cloth. No longer is it, I mean that white cloth, no longer is it white. Something is, has been identified with it. No, it was not only in the dye, but the dye is in the cloth. And when you take it out, it's different. It's been saturated by the dye. It's a brand new cloth. Something's happened to it. Well, he says in verse 4, Romans 6, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Now hang on to those words. Because the word newness there is the word kainos, which means totally brand new way of living. As believers, we have to relearn how to live. We don't live the same way we used to live. What works in the world doesn't work in the kingdom. What works in the world in other places does not work. We have to learn. This is why Romans 12, 1 and 2 is put in there. This is the practical side of what he's been building toward in Romans 1 through 11. In Romans 12, 1 and 2, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service of worship. And don't be conformed to this world. Don't you dare be pressed into the mold of the way this world does, what it does. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might prove for yourself what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. You see, there's a different way to live. And we have to learn that. We have to understand what happened at salvation. Everything now is new. Verse 5 says of Romans chapter 6, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly 
we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. Woo, that's a word there, united with. It's one word in the Greek. It's got a preposition in front of it, which 80% of the Greek words do. And that preposition determines the, the weight of the word. The word is phutos, when two things are grafted together, and that's enough of a picture. Whoa, you mean to tell me the God that stepped out on nothing, that spoke and created everything, wants a relationship with me, as we heard sung a while ago so beautifully? You mean I can be united together with him? That's exactly what he's saying. And to seal it, to seal it, he puts a preposition there that we don't have in English in the sense that they had two words for the word with. If he would have put the word meta in there, it would have meant something different. You can lose your salvation. But he chooses a different preposition, seen, S-U-N, or soon, as some people would phonetically pronounce it. What does that mean, Wayne? It means that we're not only united together with him, grafted together, but it's sealed so that nobody can ever pull us apart. Now, that's enough for shout if you want to just help yourself. I mean, we're, we, let me give you this illustration. When I lived out in Albuquerque, they had tortillas, tortillas, tortillas. Can you say that? Tortillas. Don't say tortillas. I did, and I laughed, laughed, me, laughed me out of the place. Tortillas and, tortilla, and Mexican food. By the way, they say, this chili is mild, this chili is hot, this chili is hotter. Lie like a dog. This chili this chili's hotter. This chili is hotter than that. This chili, is, you don't, don't even want to get a mile from it. I mean, it, it's, it's bad stuff. It starts at hot. Burns your mouth out. Well, they didn't understand. They understood tortilla. Everywhere you go, tortilla, tortilla, tortilla. But thank the Lord for the missionary group called the Cracker Barrel. <laughs> they came to educate the West. And they moved in on I-25 there at San Antonio Boulevard. And finally, they began to understand two things. One was what sweet tea really is. But number two, what a biscuit is. Hallelujah. A biscuit. Probably you haven't had lunch. I'm just going to make you really feel hungry right now. That old biscuit, boy. It's, got, it's, it's cooked just right. It's just crunchy enough. Don't you do it when it's soggy. But it's, it's, it's crunchy. And you got that butter on there, oh, and you just bite into it, and it just, it just blesses you. Let's just say we're, we're going to make a biscuit this morning. I got really corrected after the first service. I found out how little I know about doing anything. But I know you put flour in there. I know that's true. <laughs> I said baking soda this morning. They said, no, 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 baking powder. I don't know what the difference is, but you put that in there. Let's just say, some people say you put lard in it, but that's what you look like after you've eaten it. So you, you put it, whatever you're going to put in it, all right, it's in a bowl. Now, every ingredient that's in that bowl, if you, you were a Greek and you had to say they were with each other, you'd have to use the little preposition meta. Meta, because you could still add something, you hadn't done anything with it. And if you really knew what you were doing, you could take something out, I guess. Well, let's just say you put it in the shape of a big old cat head biscuit and you put it in the oven. Whoa. And you bake that all summer. And when you pull it out, that beautiful biscuit, big old biscuit, that's what cat head means, by the way, not kitty cat, cat head biscuit. You pull it out. Those ingredients are still together, but in a uniquely different way. They're not just with each other, but the width of association. They have been baked into each other 
so that now you can't separate them. And that's exactly what Paul is saying. Don't you know this? Are you walking around without this understanding? You're a biscuit for Jesus. Jesus has baked his life into you. And if we don't understand that, then we're off on our own when it comes to the grip of sin. Listen, he lives within us before we're ever going to live free from the grip of sin. And then remember, that's that lawless attitude. I, me, mine mentality. We must realize what happened to us is salvation. We were set free from its guilt, but we were set free from its grip. Christ lives in us. The die is in the cloth. We are a brand new creation. That's the first thing we've got to do. If we're going to live free from the grip of sin, we've got to understand what happened to us is salvation. Exactly the argument Paul is taking to the Roman believers. But secondly, we have to recognize that even though we have a brand new nature, partaking of the new nature, we can still sin. We're not home yet. Romans 6.6, 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be, and your translation, if you don't have a New American Standard, might say something else like destroyed. Mine says done away with, they're different translation, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. <clears throat> now let's walk into this carefully. The term body of sin pretty well explains what we daily deal with, doesn't it? Did you look in the mirror this morning? <clears throat> Did you realize who you're going to deal with today? <laughs> was a mirror foggy. Ron Dunn, Eddie, reminded me the other day of a time when he said, y'all be sure to come tonight. I'm going to preach on the person that's caused me the most pain in my ministry. And everybody showed up. It's me. It's me. No, I'm not. It's you. And Ron Dunn preached on the fact that Ron Dunn was the person that gave him the biggest pain in his ministry. Have we understood that yet? You see, the next phrase helps clear it up. By the way, when you get up in the morning, look in the mirror and say, good morning, body of sin. The next phrase clears it up. In order that our body of sin might be done away with. Now, the Greek word for done away with or destroyed or whatever your translation says, the Greek word is katargeo. Katargeo. It comes from the word kata, down, or geo, which means to release from its power, to disengage, or to put it in my own language, to shift into neutral. When I was uh, growing up, uh, we had one of the two ugliest cars that had ever been made. Now, Netzel was bad looking, but this was a Studebaker. Remember Studebaker? We didn't have a pretty one. We could have had a pretty ugly one, <laughs> color-wise anyway, but we had a yellow one. Thank you, Dad. We didn't have the money to pick our colors or the make or the model. It just happened to be we could afford that yellow Studebaker. We didn't have a garage or a driveway for the garage or anything like that. So my daddy, instead of parking in front of the house, he'd park it up in the yard. We said, Dad, don't do that. Park it two blocks away. We'll tell people somebody else's. We'll walk to it and drive. Parked it in the yard. Dad would, would ride the trolley to work before even for the bus he would take a token it was nothing to buy a month's worth of tokens and it was three houses up to where it stopped so hey that car sat right there in front of the house 24 7 unless we were going somewhere and i was 12 13 years old and i decided i can drive that car i mean hey summertime dad was going to work mom was busy or something so i decided i'm going to learn how to drive it now listen you young people are wimps if you didn't drive a straight ship, you either rode a bicycle or walked. Everything was straight ship. And so I, I was sitting in that thing. If you remember the first time you ever tried to start a car that was in gear and you didn't realize it, 
and you didn't push the clutch in, what happened to your neck? When you turned and went, I took a nut in your neck. And then you finally you learn to let the clutch out slowly. If you start it, push it in, start it. But then you let it out too quick. Everybody does this, and it jerks another knot in your neck. Then you learn to keep the clutch in but while you're shifting the gear. <laughs> you remember that grinding sound, like somebody grounding coffee grounds or something? And your daddy would just shudder. And, and I remember finally figuring out the coordination between the clutch and the gas pedal and figuring that gear out, put it down into first, and it didn't even grind and letting it out just right, moving forward 20 feet. And then having to shift it into reverse, have to grind for a while till we figured that out, and then back it up 20 feet. Forward 20 feet, back up 20 feet. Forward 20 feet. You say, why didn't you drive any further? Because our house, in the back of our house, it was a wall, and it went straight downhill into the woods. And I knew I would never see, live to see the daylight the next day if I did that. So I went 20 foot forward, 20 foot back. I don't know why my daddy made me wait till I was 17 to get my license. What's that all about? <laughs> you couldn't figure out, could you? But by the time I finally got my license, I'd driven about 20,000 miles. 20 foot forward, 20 foot back. 20 foot forward, 20 foot back. But you know what I learned? When you push that clutch in or you had it in neutral, you could push down the accelerator and that power of that engine would roar. Man, you could hear it for a block away. But you know what? It didn't affect the car whatsoever because it had been disengaged in its power. It was either in neutral or the clutch was in. And that's the way it is in the Christian life. Jesus broke its power. He disengaged it. And when we live surrendered to him, it has no power over us whatsoever. But the moment we choose to do things our way, the moment there is no God around here, it's my opinion, it's my preference. And when we get into that mode, look out, we've just shifted it right back into gear and sin becomes a problem one more time. Salvation is like a time-release vitamin. We were saved from the guilt of sin. We're daily learning to walk in the, from the free from the grip of sin, and one day we'll be, be saved from ever having to grapple with sin because we're going to be with Jesus forever, and this body's going to be a brand new body. But the way we have victory over sin in our lives is simply to say yes to Christ. We can't say yes to sin and say yes to Christ at the same time. I was taught growing up, look at the sin, look at the sin, look at the sin. You know what happened to me? It ate me alive. But when I finally understood victory in Jesus, don't look at the sin, look at the Savior. Run to Him. Victory is not you and me overcoming sin. Victory is Jesus overcoming us as we get our focus back where it ought to be. And when I was pastoring in Albuquerque, we had a large facility, and so I walked out into the big old fellowship mall, they called it. I was on my way to shake hands with people, and there are people everywhere coming out of connection classes and that type of thing. I saw a man coming toward me. His son looked as nervous as he could possibly be, big old splotches of, of red on his cheek. You know how people do that when, they, when they're embarrassed? Walking toward me, and his daddy had him by the collar, just pushing him, about a 16, 17-year-old kid. He got him up to me, and he said, Preacher, we need to talk to you. And in front of all these people, just embarrassing his son. I caught him on the Internet. I caught him looking at some bad stuff. We need to come talk to you. I looked at him, put my, <laughs> never done this before in my life, put my fingers on his chest and just pushed the daddy away. I said, I don't want to talk to you. 
But I looked at that boy who was so ashamed and so embarrassed, and I put my arm around him and drew him to my chest, and I just held him. And I said, son, I'll talk to you anytime about the normal Christian life, of the struggle every man has, of every woman has. I would love to talk to you about how that you cannot overcome that, son. You cannot overcome it. But Jesus can overcome you and live in the victory that he's already given to you in Christ. I've never had anything that moved me like that. If you're not live, going to live under the grip of sin, then first of all, you better recognize what happened to you when you got saved. You're a biscuit for Jesus. And then recognize that you can still sin. That potential is there only when we choose not to say yes to Christ. Thirdly, we must learn to revisit the promises we have in Christ. We've got them. They're there. And Paul rehearses them for the Roman believers in verses 7 through 11. And what, does he, what does Paul remind the believers in Rome that God had promised? First of all, that we've been acquitted from sin, just as if we had never sinned, is what the word, he says, for he who has died, in verse 7, is freed from sin. Look up the word freed in the Greek. It's the word acquitted. It's the same word used in Romans 5. We've been made righteous, acquitted, as if we had never sinned before. And I think of Stephen, and I've told this story several times, when he and his little buddy Doug were down, actually Doug wasn't with him, he was with his roommate in college and went to see Georgia play Florida. He's a big Georgia fan, and I've been praying for him for years. He will not repent. And he went down to the Gator Bowl to watch that game. And he called me and said, Dad, I'm going to go down and get tickets. I said, you're not going to get tickets. They're going to have to die and will you a ticket. You don't get it any other way. Yeah, I'm going to get one. So he goes down and, you know, bought it from a scalper. And 30 bucks a piece, which wasn't bad, and it wasn't in the nosebleed section. So he calls me and tells me about it. I said, whoa, way to go. He turns around. He's walking toward the stands. And a man says, how much you take for those two tickets, big boy? Stevens, college man, he's broke. He said, $50. I mean, he paid $30. He's going to take at least $50 out of it. The guy said, you're under arrest. Put handcuffs on him. He took him to the Duval County Jail in Jacksonville, Florida. I get a phone call from his buddy. He called his buddy and told him to call me. Doug called me and said, Mr. Barber, I got some bad news. It's about Stephen. I said, is he sick? No. I said, he's been in a wreck? No. I said, is he dead? It's worse than that. And I said, well, what's wrong? He said, he's in jail. I said, he's in jail? Stephen is not smart enough to be in jail. What did he do? He told me what happened. He said, uh, he's going to call you in a minute. I told Diana, whoa, he's our son. He's our son. Don't be mean to him. Don't be mean to him. He's our baby, our baby. He says, he only gets one phone call. We love mystery shows, Perry Mason, you know. I said, Dinah, he didn't kill anybody. <laughs> the phone in his room. So he finally calls. Dad, what do you think about it? I said, that's probably the dumbest thing you've ever done. Diana, no, don't tell him that. Don't tell him that. He said, you're going to bail me out? I said, I don't know, Stephen. I've never been in this situation before. <laughs> How do I do that? He said, call the death sergeant. Gave me a, gave me a number. I called the death sergeant. <laughs> and the death sergeant said, Mr. Barber, I'll tell you what I'd do. I said, what? He said, I'd leave him in there. I said, I like you. I like you. Why? He said, because there's 280, some of these kids, that they, they've all, they do this every game, and said, it's a law in Florida. It's not in every state like that. And he said, uh, the judge that comes in in the morning hates this law with a passion, and he said, he, he will erase his record from ever having been there. He will acquit him of ever having been there. Stephen called me and said, you bail me out? I said, no. What? 
I said, you got to spend the night. Told him why. He said, what do I do? I said, again, Steve, I've never been in jail before. I don't exactly know. I said, just sleep with your eyes open. Thank God you're sick, sick. So next morning, <laughs> next morning goes before the judge. And the judge told him, he said, I hate this law. If you'd have gotten some money for those tickets, I'd give it back to you. But check the laws of your state. I don't know if they've changed it since now. Then they're not, but it's been a long time ago. But uh, he said, as far as the state of Florida is concerned, you never, ever showed up today. Just as if you'd never been here. You see, we've been justified, just as if we'd never sinned. Romans 6, 8 says, now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Guess what the word with is? Seen. He says, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, Death no longer is master over him. You mean he came in and he's inseparable from me? Yes. And he's never going to die. He's our high priest that never dies. Then he, prom he shows him a promise. He says that he's given us his prejudiced will. Notice this in verse 10. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, and the life that he lives. Where does he live that life? Yes, he's at the right hand of the Father. But he lives in us in the person of his Holy Spirit. He says he lives to God toward God, pulling us. Listen, there's a divine prejudice will already within us. And when sin comes at us, God's pulling us all the time towards him. Come on, Wayne. Come on, Wayne. Get your eyes on me, Wayne. Come on. Come on. And when I sin, I have to swim upstream. That's how difficult it is. It's labor. If I would just get in the flow and say yes to him, sin has no power. Word consider, he says in verse 11, even so consider yourselves to be dead to sin. There's that definite article. But alive to God in Christ Jesus. The word consider, logizome, it's a counting term. But really, the emphasis here is that this is the GPS point of the whole book. If we don't get this, then we'll live, live in the grip of sin forever. It means to know this absolutely for certain. Absol don't ever doubt this, that you're alive to God. You're dead to, to that old way of living, and you're alive to God in Christ Jesus. Know that we're alive in Christ, in His power, in His grace, in His wisdom, in His, in His nature, and on and on. And we don't owe sin anything. Somebody wrote a book several years ago that says we wouldn't sin as much if we understood how stupid sin is for the believer. It's just stupid. God has released us from its guilt. He's released us from its grip. And yet, between these two ears, are we ever hard-headed? We're going to do it our way or the highway. And that's what pulls us back into that old mire that he has to deliver us from fresh again. It's like somebody sending payments for a car that they've already paid for. They just like the guy that sold them a car. They just say, you know what? I liked him so much, I think I'll keep sending payments. Doesn't make any sense, does it? If you're not going to live under the if you're if you're not going to live under the grip of sin, if you're not going to do it, you don't want to live under its grip, then realize what happened when you got saved. Realize what you are. A biscuit for Jesus. Recognize that you can still sin. The proclivity of the flesh is still there. The remains of the flesh is still there. We've got to deal with. Brand new nature. Brand new heart. By the way, the term sin nature is not a biblical term. It's a new international version term. Use what the scripture says. We still have the flesh to deal with. One day we'll have a brand new body. Revisit the promises we have in Christ. But fourthly, here really comes the practical application of it. Release yourself in the midst of temptation, in the midst of whatever. Just release yourself fully to Christ. Don't give in to the temptations of sin. You don't have to. He's got an answer. Verse 12, therefore, 
do not let the sin, there we go, that old attitude of lawlessness, I'm going to do it my way, reign in your mortal body so that you should obey its lust. Now I want to ask you a question. Why would he tell me not to let it reign when it couldn't anyway? Evidently, there's something going on here. Don't let it rule you. Don't let it lord over you. But Wayne, I have a sin that does so easily beset me, and so do every one of us. But when it comes to that, identify what it is. And like Hebrews 12, 1 says, identify and lay it aside. How do you lay it aside? By saying yes to Jesus. And as we say yes to Jesus, it just sort of fades in its power. You see, how could it happen, though, that a believer could let sin reign? Like that, that old attitude. How, how could he even allow it? Verse 13. Do not go on, he's speaking to believers, be presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. What a picture. As a believer, what we do if we're not focused on Christ and if we're not allowing his word to, to renew our minds and if we're not living in what he has said, what we do, we just offer ourselves to whatever the temptation of sin is. He says, don't do that. Stop doing it. By the way, has anybody else done that besides me in here? <laughs> Y'all the most spiritual group I think I've ever shared with. Y'all really knew me and the struggles I have. You wouldn't come to hear me, but I've said it a million times, if I knew you, I wouldn't have bothered driving over here this morning either. We're all in the same boat. Why don't we admit that? Why can't the church be a safe place to where we can admit what we're struggling with without somebody casting a judgmental finger right down our throat? Well, how do we turn it around? How do we turn it around? We turn it around when we present ourselves to Christ. Instead of presenting ourselves to the temptation and to what, the, what that evil is, present ourselves to Christ. And how do you do that? When we bow before his lordship and his word, we used to sing that song, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord. That's it. And we, we become his instrument, his vessel, through whom now he can produce his righteousness. You know what righteousness is? Righteous is who we are. Righteousness is the, the lifestyle God demands from us. And he says in Romans 6, 13, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments, vessels, conduits of righteousness to God. Word presenting, same word he uses in chapter 12. Therefore, when he says, therefore I urge you, brethren, to present your bodies a living sacrifice. Same exact word, same thought. Then as we're yielded to Christ and to his will, we experience his enabling grace, which delivers us from ourselves. And you finally come to verse 14, and watch what he says. Once we're doing that, he says, for, and there's no definite article here. He drops it. And what does it do? It qualifies. For sin, and he means of any kind, whatever it is, shall not be master over you, for you're not under law, but you're under grace. Now, I see a difference in Romans 5, 1 and Romans 6, 14. 1 and 2 of chapter 5. In chapter 5, 1 and 2 is by faith we gain access into this grace in which we stand. That's positional. But I guarantee you it's a choice in Romans 6, 14. We can choose to live under grace or we can choose to live under law. You say, I don't believe that. Well, study the book of Galatians and you will have no trouble with it whatsoever exactly what they went back to old performance mentality so Wayne I don't want to live under the grip of sin neither do I 
So what do we do? Realize what happened when we say, brand new creatures. Christ has baked himself into us. Recognize, yeah, sin is still possible. Even though he gave us a new nature, we can still choose. Revisit the promises he's already given to us. He'd never leave us, lives within us, and release yourself fully to Christ as you understand it. I guarantee you, as you walk, you begin to understand more and more what that fully means. But you also begin to understand more and more who Christ is. The more you surrender to him, the more you understand of who it is you're surrendering to. The nature of God is good all the time. Huh. Oh, it's in his time. Right on time? Just in time. Well, well, why? Because that's his nature. Do you not get it? I'll tell you one thing. When you don't surrender to him, you're going to think he's got a hammer ready to, to break you in a thousand pieces. But the more you learn to surrender, the more you know about him. He's never changed. It's, it's the deeper you're willing to go with him, the deeper you're going to understand who he is. The outflow is incredible. It's like that old caterpillar. Don't you like caterpillars? Ladies, don't you like caterpillars? Little ugly little dudes. And one day they secrete something, and it puts a kind of, <laughs> you can tell I really understand all these things. Somehow they get into a cocoon, however that happens. All of you scientific brains, relax. But something happens, I'm like the guy in John 9. I couldn't see, now I can. But it's in a cocoon for a while, and all of a sudden it breaks out, and it doesn't look like it did before. It's beautiful. It's a butterfly. Wow, what a transformation. Now, yes, that happened at salvation, but it happens every single time that we surrender to him. It's not us people see. It's the beautiful Christ that lives within us. 